This message comes from NPR sponsor Viore, a new perspective on performance apparel. Clothing designed with premium fabrics, built to move in, styled for life. For 20% off your first purchase, go to viore.com slash NPR. Hey everyone, this is David Green. So Jay Williams is letting me step in today to share a new show that I've been working on. It's called In the Moment. Each week, we talk to a different elite athlete about a career-defining moment in their lives and what it took them to get there. Thanks for listening. And just a quick note, there is some adult language in this episode. The emotion that hits you at the Super Bowl is, is different. We walked into every stadium saying people are going to have trouble beating us because they can't score. It's the 2008-2009 NFL season, and my beloved Pittsburgh Steelers have probably the greatest defense in NFL history. Former safety Ryan Clark and the Steelers led the league in fewest points and yards allowed per game, and they ranked second in sacks with 51. With a 12-4 record in the regular season, they're the favorites going into the Super Bowl against the Arizona Cardinals. The buildup is over, and away we go in Super Bowl 43. The Steelers' defense and fans like me, I mean, we're confident that we can shut anyone down. We're almost cocky about it. And from the start, the Steelers are dominating the Cardinals. I have so many plays from the Super Bowl etched in my brain, but obviously one of them is just before halftime. The Cardinals are about to score, but instead... Steelers show a blitz. Here they come. He gets it away, and it's picked off at the goal line. James Harrison to run it back, and Harrison is going to go all the way. It's a 100-yard interception return. Linebacker James Harrison makes an incredible interception and runs the entire length of the field for a touchdown. I still have goosebumps, and I replay this play in my brain a lot. But then, in the second half, Arizona claws back, and all of a sudden, the Super Bowl ring seems up for grabs. It was not only, to us, improbable. If you asked us Saturday night, there's no way that defense ends up in that position but man here we were with less than three minutes left in the fourth quarter arizona's qb kurt warner has the ball and a chance to win this is a position steelers fans and ryan clark never saw coming you know the steelers are using their their dime defense now so you know it's just all about pass rush and pass coverage and we knew the freaking play and so here's what happens when you know a play when you know a play you jump it Got those safeties deep again. And so our thought is, okay, they can't throw it low in the side. They have to throw it here. So you know what we both thought? One of us finna get a pick, win the game. We're going to be the greatest defense in the history of ball, at least in the 2000s, forever, because the game is changing and it's over. Second, second and ten. Not everything works out as planned. Probably because Clark and the Steeler defense were facing off against Warner and one of the greatest wide receivers of all time, Larry Fitzgerald. Warner has to Fitzgerald! Once Larry turns it upfield, nobody's there. In the Steeler territory, 30, 20, 10, Arizona has the lead. And when you watch, you know, Larry Fitzgerald go into the end zone, you know, you, you realize that we just lost it. 
you know, not the offense, not the special teams. Hit him in the perfect place. Look, the safeties are deep, and they're off looking for the wide receivers. And Larry Fitzgerald catches that ball and runs right through it. Everything we had done from August until the beginning of February meant absolutely nothing because we lost it. And that was the feeling the, the feeling we had, man. Like, I had tears in my eyes because I was like, this is how we'll always be remembered. You know, it's funny. You go through the whole season with all the stats and the Pittsburgh stats, but when you needed them to play, they didn't do it. We walked in with almost a, a presence or a perception of invincibility. As we walked to the sideline, all of that was gone. The dread that Clark was experiencing on the sidelines, I mean, I can tell you everyone in Steeler Nation was feeling that same way. Then, in a game filled with these improbable moments, comes one final play. And the Steelers pull off a victory. They win Super Bowl 43. It was so much bigger than even what normal Super Bowls are for people. For Ryan Clark, this moment was a comeback in more ways than one. You know, watching Ryan Clark play tenacious defense, you'd never know that he almost died back in 2007, falling gravely ill to a disease he knew little about. Every single play to me was the, the most important play I'd ever played. This is In the Moment from Religion of Sports and PRX. I'm David Green. Each week we go inside the mind of an athlete to relive a pivotal moment in their career. And this week, it's former Steelers safety Ryan Clark and how he went from the brink of death to winning a Super Bowl ring. There's a picture of me laying in the confetti with my eyes closed. It was the first time I had exhaled or relaxed in over a year. More when we return. Hi, this is David. Just a quick note here. You can listen to In the Moment each week. New episodes drop every Tuesday. For example, you can hear what former Cardinals wide receiver Larry Fitzgerald had to say about this same Super Bowl. As you can imagine, he had a completely different experience. Plus, conversations with athletes like former Red Sox pitcher Pedro Martinez, also WNBA star Elena Deladon, and many more. Just subscribe to our feed in the moment. And thank you so much for checking us out. Ryan Clark was an undrafted safety who came into the NFL in 2002. After being dropped from the New York Giants and from Washington, he was told that he's just not good enough to start. But he liked to prove coaches and teams wrong. He went on to play in two Super Bowls for the Steelers, taking the victory in that 2009 game. He was no stranger to overcoming adversity on and off the football field. He was born with a condition that nearly killed him. And we'll have a lot more on that later. You know, we talk to a lot of athletes, and a few of them have told us that in huge moments like the Super Bowl, time feels like it stands still. But that was not the case for Ryan Clark. 
in that tense fourth quarter of the Super Bowl as he was facing off against Cardinals wide receiver Larry Fitzgerald. Does time slow down on a play like that when when you're watching a a fast as hell receiver like fly up the field and you feel like there's no chance you're going to get him? And hell I mean, no, what, what is that? Hell no, time don't slow down. He was running fast as hell. <laughs> Shoot, I but felt what, like what do you I remember? Like time sped up. What do you remember about like? <laughs> I remember, I remember looking at Troy and me and him realizing we had just cost our team the game. That was about it. Um, you still know that there's time on the clock and you have an opportunity to win, but football players are very selfish beings when it comes to their performances, you know. And in truth, we were very selfish about our defense. Yeah, we wanted to to win every game, but we wanted to win every matchup, you know. And what I mean by that is, is, is if we're playing a, a great offense, we want to dominate that offense. If we're playing the Baltimore Ravens, we want to outplay Ray Lewis. We want to outplay Terrell Suggs. We want to outplay Ed Reed, right? So like, do you remember what it felt like walking to the sideline after you gave up that touchdown? Yeah. I mean, can I cuss on here? Because it felt like crap. You know, it felt like we walked into the week on top of the world. All of that was gone. Do you remember someone saying something to you or you saying something no, to No, nah, nobody talked. Really? Nobody talked. There was nothing to say. And I always say this, right? And it's, you, you can be different with your children, but I, I feel like you should understand this with adults. Most times when people with common sense or a little bit of sense of something make a mistake, if they have any pride into what they're doing, they're more upset about their mistake than anybody else. And you felt like you made a mistake. We all felt like we did. 11 people felt like we did. It wasn't my play. Like, to be honest, it wasn't my play. But the, the thing that made us great was so many people made plays throughout that season that wasn't their play. So what, right? what, what do you remember about standing on the sideline? I mean, what were you thinking if you weren't talking to each other? Like, what is... So I never... I never once, and like, you know, Coach LeBeau talked about it. You know, we're going to have to go back out there. We're going to have to make a play. Offense is going to score. I wasn't listening. because Your I defensive was, coordinator, Dick LeBeau, I mean, yeah. he, he's saying to you, don't worry, the offense is going to score. You're going to be back out there. Yeah, but nobody believed that. Like, they weren't even really? that good. Like, were they, like, be honest. Like, you watched that team. We weren't there because <laughs> of the offense. The offense wasn't that good? No, nah, it was just okay. <laughs> right or wrong? Can't tell if you're being serious or not. I'm, bro. <laughs> I've never been more serious in my life. So you were standing there on the sideline thinking thinking Ben Roethlisberger in this offense is not going to, like, we just gave up the Super Bowl. They're not going to score. We got no shot. Bruh, we won a game 10 to 11 that year. We were winning games by baseball scores. You know what I'm saying? No, people had to hit a couple of grand slams to get to 11, but we weren't just this explosive offense that just scored at will, right? They didn't put the 2008 defense and Ben on the cover of the magazine, they put us on it. And in truth, like selfishly, it didn't really even matter to me that they was going to score. Like if they scored, fine, we still suck. You know, like you, you guys think we're so much more evolved than we're not evolved humans. We played a sport because we loved it and we wanted to be the best at it 
as we possibly could be. And on that play, in that time, we were not. And I don't. But you had to be rooting for the offense. I mean, even if you're like, we messed up. I'm not saying we didn't root for him. Like, hell yeah, you want him to score because you want to win. Right. Right? Like, like you want to win. But you but, still felt like shit over that play, whatever happened. Yeah, but it doesn't, not even just that play. You know, you give up a drive before that, too. It, it wasn't the, the one play. It was everything. It was the whole of it. It was the high of walking into halftime knowing you had made one of the greatest plays in history. You had taken points off the board. You had given your team points. Steelers show blitz. Here they come. He gets it away. James Harrison to run it back, and Harrison is past midfield. Harrison going down the sideline. Harrison still on his feet. Harrison is going to go all the way and waiting for the official to get there. Touchdown is signal. It's a 100-yard interception return. You have put yourself in a position that dang near no one in football could come back from against that defense if nobody else made a mistake. Right. If you didn't get a punt block, if you didn't get a turnover, they didn't get a pick six of the other 31 teams in the world. There was no one we thought could come back. That was the way we were. Right. We felt like seven points. Like truly, I do a podcast, you know, called The Pivot. Mm -hmm. Uh, We just interviewed Mike Tomlin and he'll be up soon. And he says to my co-host, 14 points was always enough. Right. Not that night. Not that night. Well, so then you're, you're on the field. When Ben starts driving down the field with a chance to win, where are you standing? And So I don't, I don't sit on the bench. I sit on the ground. I sit on the ground away from the team in, in, the, in the best spots because I could see. And I just remember once it was caught, just walking from where I was, grabbing my helmet, putting it on, strapping my chin strap, and praying that they didn't get to throw a Hail Mary and that Larry Fitzgerald jumps over me and Troy's head, wins the game, and we still lose it for the entire city of Pittsburgh. Yep, that was... Well, so you, I wasn't very confident. The offense scores, and it's, you don't even have time to celebrate. You're ready to get back out there, and you're saying you were, you were playing out the was, nightmare scenario in your head. I was terrified. Terrified. So take me to the moment when you felt the sense of relief, that the fear melted away, that you were like, oh, holy shit, we held on. When does clock hit zero? I can truly say to you, I do not remember a feeling of happiness ever that night. You know? No uh, happiness. I don't remember like a feeling of joy. What was the feeling? Relief. Relief. I was tired, man. Just very tired. You know, I remember not drinking that night. You know, I think I can't talk about that night without taking you to late October 2007. Yeah, let's give a little more context on what happened in October 2007. That's the season before the Super Bowl against the Cardinals. The Steelers were playing the Broncos on the road in Denver, Colorado, Ryan Clark notched four tackles in that game, but the Steelers lost 31-28. After the game, Ryan explained to team doctors that something was not quite right with him. Boarding a plane from Denver 
to Pittsburgh and, and telling a trainer my spleen is hurting and having him laugh at me, you know, and, and say, how do you know that? And I was able to say, well, because I felt it before, you know, and, and they take you to the hospital and the hospital kind of tells you there's nothing we could do for you but manage your pain, you know, and, and you're sitting. And then they send you to the hotel. And I remember I took a cold shower. I put the air conditioner down as low as it can go. And I laid on the floor butt naked because I was like, if I could just numb myself a little bit, the pain will stop. And they they sent a doctor. They left the doctor with me as the team went back. And I remember not wanting to call him because they said I should be okay. And I felt like that would be soft if I couldn't take the pain. And um, I end up calling him. I go back to the hospital. They fly my family out the next day, my kids, my wife. I stay in there a day. So doctors said something was wrong with his spleen, but at first they didn't know what was causing this. So Ryan Clark flew back to Pittsburgh with a mystery illness, and he kept suffering from debilitating pain. A week after that game in Denver, he says he hit his lowest moment. Steelers playing Cincinnati in Cincinnati. I'm in the bed. It gets really cold in the house. I start shivering, but like kind of shaking. I ask if the doors are open or the windows are open. Everybody tells me no windows are open. I can't stop shaking. So now I'm like moving the bed. My mom comes in. My mom prays like eight days a week, like 25 hours a day. She's rubbing like oil on my head. They like wrap me up. My wife gets like a blow dryer and tries to like heat me up, but she had it on like cool. And so that was not good either. And uh, so I remember, man, I just start praying, right? Because I'm like, this is it. Like, this is like, this is like when you die, you know, like this is the time. And so I prayed first um, for my kids. You know, I got two girls um, and a son. And so I prayed for my girls first that like they'd be fine and they'd be okay without me and that my friends could help and and you know, and that uh, that they find you know like good husbands to to take care of them, and that they'd always be safe. Uh, then I prayed that my son would just be a great man, and he'd take care of his sisters and you know and his mom, and that uh, you know he'd be everything like that I never was. And so you know, then I prayed you know that my wife find somebody uh, that was a good man. Uh, I didn't want him to be hands- more handsome than me because I just felt like that'd be kicking the face, you know, like <laughs> the guy's like more handsome yeah, too. Yeah. And um, yeah. And so then I prayed for my soul, you know. I told God that, you know, anything, you know, that I had done that in any way said I didn't, you know, I didn't love him or that in some way didn't make him proud of me, you know, I asked him to forgive me. You know what I'm saying? What did you want to be forgiven for? Just for anything, man. You know, just we're humans and, and we are born into sin, you know? And I think I look at it like parenting. Like parenting is not like a reciprocal relationship. Like just because I love my kids and I'll give my kids my life and give my life for them doesn't mean they're going to listen to everything I say, you know? And so I think it's like the same thing in that relationship, you know? Like I know he loves me. And then I just remember... After I said that, I was like, okay, I'm ready. Amen. And I tell the story, and I think people don't believe me, which is crazy. Um, When I said I'm ready, I stopped shaking. And that was when I knew that I was going to be all right. Like, that was when I knew that whatever it was, 
that was wrong with me. Like at some point, you know, we'd figure it out because if there was ever a time I was going to die, that was going to be it. Ryan Clark suffered in pain for several weeks before he finally got a doctor to listen to him. But I was riding home and I just started praying and I was like, man, I was like, God, I'm trying to trust these people and I know they know more than I know. I was like, but you have to let me know when to say something is wrong. More when we return. It took weeks before Ryan Clark learned what was wrong with him. Turns out it had to do with something he was born with, the sickle cell trait. People carry that trait if the gene was passed down from one of their parents. Normally, people with the trait are fine and never get severe symptoms that come with the full-blown disease. But sometimes the trait can be triggered. And that's what happened to Clark during that game in Denver. The low oxygen in the high altitude combined with overexerting himself caused a sickle cell crisis, meaning his red blood cells sickled. So instead of being round and flexible so they can move easily through the blood vessels, they become like sickles or crescent moons, slowing blood flow and causing a lot of pain. Ryan, can I? Can you, for people who don't know how you got to that low point and nearly died, um, what is sickle cell trait for people who don't know? The sickle cell trait is actually... Not as bad for, for everybody else as it is for me. I am in the lucky 1% of sickle cell uh, trait carriers who can actually have a sickle cell crisis. Most of us cannot. And so in high altitude, your blood sickles. And all it means is your, your, your blood cells almost like a boomerang. It tears through arteries. It tears through organs. And it's, as, it's an extremely painful process. Most people who actually do have sickle cell, which is, it affects one in every 10 African-Americans, most people who do have sickle cell don't have spleens and gallbladders um, because when they go through crisis, uh, it's what's called a spleen infarction, which is what I had in Denver. It basically kills off parts of your spleen throughout life and eventually you get a splenectomy. Does that mean well, you were living your life knowing that that something terrible could happen at some point if, if you had no, these organs and not, not, not really, because like I said, I had the trait. And so it, it, it wasn't necessarily like they knew it was possible, but it wasn't necessarily supposed to happen to me. And there's a lot of guys in like Santonio Holmes has the sickle cell trait. Mm -hmm. uh, he was able to play in Denver every time without consequence. Um, just for me, the adverse reaction to altitude and overexertion was different. And so my spleen, I had a spleen infarction that light night, which meant parts of my spleen died. And what happened was it got infected. And when it got infected, it was enlarged. And by it being enlarged, now it was compressing my other organs. So that was why I was so skinny because I didn't have a stomach. Right? So I was never hungry because there was nothing to, there was nothing to feel. And so what would mostly happen was I went to work every morning. And they would tell me, like, walk around the field or try to jog. So Clark got sick in Denver on October 21st, 2007. He came back to Pittsburgh and continued to work out, but was unable to play for the next three weeks. During that time, 
his illness was still a mystery to doctors. They would send me home every day about 12 because I start running a fever or I couldn't stand up straight. And so every night I would go to sleep and at like two o'clock I'd have to wake up, take off my pajamas, take off the sheets on the bed. And you know, my wife would change all the stuff on the bed because my fever would run like 103, right? But in the morning, I'd wake up and I'd be okay. And so they would think I would be okay when I walked into work. It was a Thursday and I was talking to the doctor and he brings me all the tests and he says, nothing's wrong with you. He looks at all the tests, they showed nothing. And then he tossed me the paper and he was like, um, now I'll listen to you complain because I was in so much pain. I remember driving home. Well, I wasn't driving. I was riding home and I just started praying. And I was like, man, I was like, God, I'm trying to trust these people. And I know they know more than I know. I was like, but you have to let me know when to say something is wrong. You have to let me know when to speak up for myself. And the next day, coming home from work, because I went every day still, I was just in pain, man. So I called a doctor named Stephen Marks, who worked at the uh, Cancer Institute. He was like the need, uh, leading uh, hematologist there. And I had seen him like four times. And I was like, please, sir, can I please take a test? Can you please see me? Can you please see me? And he was in New York. And he kind of, and I could hear it in his voice. He was tired of me. And he just goes, fine, I'll get it set up. You had to fight for people to believe that you were sick. Like that must, I mean, what does that feel like? Well, you know, like when you spent your whole life being tough, it makes you feel like you're being soft, honestly. Huh. That sounds when terrible. The only, when the only reason you are where you are is because of your mental toughness, your intestinal fortitude, your intelligence, your willingness to do things other people don't, and your trust in other people, you feel like if they're telling me I'm okay, I should be okay. And when you're when you're not okay, you start to believe it's you, you know. And so I didn't complain or I didn't tell people how bad it was because I felt like nobody cared, you know. And so like two hours after I take that test, the doctor calls and he's like, don't go home. They're outside the hospital because I was in the car. Don't go home. They're outside the hospital waiting for you. Call someone to stay with your kids get to the hospital now. And so I go to the hospital or whatever, and my spleen was too big to take out at the time, laparoscopically, and they said if they took it out any other way, I'd never play again. I had to do this thing where they like vacuumed some of my spleen out because he still wanted me to be able to play because obviously he loves Pittsburgh too. And I just remember going into the hospital that when I got sick, I was 205 pounds. When I went to the hospital, I was 160, you know, and it was about a month span. And I just remember that time and, and having the surgery, having a doctor tell me if I didn't contact him on Friday, I wouldn't have made it through the weekend. And you go through all these things. 2008, every single play was the Super Bowl to me. And unlike most people, I had been working since basically the first day of January, the, the year before. You know, I didn't get the break after the season of um, – in 2007, I didn't get vacations, you know, I, I didn't get to relax. It was the first time, there's a picture of me laying in the confetti with my eyes closed. It was the first time I had exhaled or relaxed in over a year since the doctor pulled me off the plane in Denver. From that moment on, life had been a, a question mark 
in some way. Not that I was going to live, but every moment had a question attached to it, right? Even the the play with Fitz, you know, the play that Lamar causes the fumble had a question attached to it. And finally, when we win, you know, there were no more questions. We were and will always be part of a legendary team. We will forever be connected to the great Steeler defenses, and we were Super Bowl champions, and nobody could ever could ever change that. And I think the thing that made it the coolest, man, was that we were all so different. We'd all been brought there in so many different ways, and we had all faced actual football adversity that showed our character, and football justice had been served, that even though we effed it up in the fourth quarter, it was like, you know, and I believe this wholeheartedly. We deserve to win it. Not that, not that they didn't have people on their team that, that didn't. Not that there weren't people on that team that had worked hard, that had gone through things. But we deserve to win it. I deserved to win it. These moments we're talking about are so powerful. I mean, near death. And then winning the Super Bowl and how you tie those moments together. Like... Are those the moments that you want to define you? Or like if we look a year from now and I was asking you what moments most pivotal in your life, like is there something else that you that you want to experience that might become like a, a bigger moment? My, my hopes are the the moments that that truly end up defining me aren't moments that people know about. Mm. Huh. Why do you say that? You know? Because I think and like no offense to you or to anybody who's listening to this, what does it matter what you think of me? And I, and please don't take this as, as, as disrespect. It's like, what have those people who will use those moments to define me, like what have they given to my life? You know, how how much do they truly care about me? You know, but if if I'm gone and, you know, somebody asks, Jordan, who's my son, you know, what do you remember about dad or what you think defines your father? I hope it's, I hope he's able to say he was just there every single time I needed him. I hope my girls are, are able to, you know, look at their husbands and if their husbands or whoever they're with, you know, says they love him and they don't believe it's true, I hope they could point to now, like I know what it, I know what it felt like to have a man, the first man who ever meant anything in my life, love me. Hmm. You don't want it to be like my dad was a a Super Bowl champion. My dad like went through a horrific no, my girls, health crisis. My girls didn't. My girls didn't go to the Super Bowls. They didn't care. My son, my son took the loss harder than me. But uh, the girls, the girls don't care about football, man. It's um. My son plays at Arizona State, and so like we have that, you know, we have that bond. And he was like such a huge part of our playoff run. He broke us down at every walkthrough, and then he eventually became the locker room babysitter at walkthroughs when everybody else started to have sons. Like he started this tradition of being able to bring your boys, because like I was one of those dudes that did football all the time, and so like I didn't get to see him a ton. You know, like I get to bring him to practice like when I was off, but I didn't get to see him as much as I wanted to. And so I would bring him every Saturday so I could just spend time with him. And then one day 
in 2008, toward the end of the season, Coach T was like, hey, Jordan, break us down. And Jordan and Ben had like this crazy close relationship still to this day. Your son, um, your son and, so, and Ben Roethlisberger. Yes. Yeah. And so he broke us down. Ben holds him up. He breaks us down. And the next week, we're about to do it again. He's on the side playing, being a kid. And Ben calls him up again because we're football players. We're superstitious. Like, we just are. And if we're not as superstitious, we like routine, you know. And he breaks him down again. And then, like, the little pamphlet or the little booklet they put together after we win the Super Bowl, one of the pictures is on the, the, the walkthrough before the Super Bowl game. Everyone got to invite a family member or two, if you wanted to bring two, and the reason they got to do that was because of Jordan. Because Jordan would come every week. And so Coach T, obviously Jordan was going to be there. There was no way he was going to break us down for every other playoff game and not do the Super Bowl. And Coach T allowed everybody to bring a family member, and it became a thing, man. And one of the pictures is Jordan smiling with all the, the boys holding him up in the air, you know, the day before the Super Bowl. And so I think... When you have kids at 19 and 21, not cool. Not fun to go home and tell your mom that. You, you broke as hell. You don't think it'll ever be good. But, like, my babies, like, my son, like, a lot of these dudes who have babies the right way and get married late and then have babies, they like, their sons didn't get to know who they were, right? Like, Troy's kids know a little bit, but they don't really know who daddy was. Right. Like they don't know that their dad was one of the greatest players to ever play this game, you know, because they didn't really get to see it. You know, what I mean, like my son got an opportunity to be there and to see it and to be around all these great men. Like, that's what I want to take from football. You know, I want him to take from football about my career is that I was an undrafted free agent. I was cut more than one time. I was cut three, four times. I worked at LSU during, you know, my football career. And at the end of my career, my last two years, I was voted captain of two different football teams. That his dad was leader enough to do that. And so I think, man, like that is like that's what like that's what I always remember. You know, the plays are the plays, but the the things that you get to learn and share and grow into throughout your career. I think if you talk to a lot of players, you know, those are the things you remember. And like when you get around your old teammates you know, or you see your old coach and your coach, you know, he's asked a question of why was it so important to protect me? And he was like, because I, I know what this man had already given our mm. team. And I think that's important. Who has the sickle cell trait? Ryan, what, which of your kids? Logan, my youngest. Young daughter. Yeah, my youngest. She's a daughter. She's my daughter. She ain't going to Colorado, no way. So unlike my parents ever told me, uh, because I've done so much work uh, with different foundations and different charities for sickle cell, yeah. you know, I do tell her she has to be aware of who she dates and who she marries. Why do you say that? Because because if her partner also has the trait, then their kid has a high probability of having sickle cell anemia. I have I'm, I don't know why I'm telling all these unfortunate stories. The year we won the Super Bowl, my sister in law died at 27 from sickle cell. Mm, I'm so sorry. And it was right, yeah, so after, was what, the, right after the Super Bowl, right? Um, it was the Saturday before, because everybody couldn't go to the Super Bowl. I threw a Super Bowl celebration in Louisiana. It was the Saturday before I left to go home. So I simultaneously picked out 
my uh my he's my best friend. I call him my brother, but picked out his wife's coffin and figured out, you know, how to throw a party. Hmm. You know, like afterwards. That's, that's so, a lot. Yeah, man. You know, it, it it seems like more now that I'm telling the story than than I think it felt like uh during that time. I think it always happens though when you come out on the other side of it. You know, but I do you know, telling these stories uh, again and and kind of reliving it, it, it definitely makes like winning that Super Bowl, man, and and what it meant for so many people in, in my life, like so many people that have su- supported me. You know, my mom dragging me around to every practice I made her go through, go to the basketball, baseball, football, to walking into um, my kitchen. And hearing my mom on the phone with the lady she had to pay my high school tuition to and her working out days where she could pay uh, bits and pieces of it, you know, in order for us to be able to make tuition. I think, you know, to have them on the field and have all those people who had done so much, you know, my parents took off of work for weeks when I was sick to come up and help. And you know, so like we all shared, like we all shared that moment. That was everybody's, that was everybody's moment. Mm. And I think the fact that you know we all got to have it um, is probably the coolest part. How was that moment, that championship, different because of what you had experienced and and your your illness and and nearly dying? The game didn't matter. I've never, I never wear the ring. You never wear the I ring it, today. I worn it twice. I wore it the day I got it. And I had to do a commercial, and they asked me to wear it, and I wore it. When I lived in Pittsburgh, I lived in like a regular old neighborhood. I did let every single neighbor put it on, though. Nice. The day we got it, they came to the house. When I got home, uh, Gigi, who was our neighbor, she was, Gigi was like 75, 80 at the time. She was the first, she was outside when I got home, and they knew the ring ceremony was that day, and she asked to wear it and let her wear it, so then everybody else came over. I love that. Um, Yeah, but for me, man, it was... You know, like people use it, like use it just like kind of hyperbole. Like I wasn't supposed to be here. Like because they want to talk about the struggle of how hard it is to get there or that they were counted out. Like I truly felt like I wasn't supposed to be there. And at the same time, I felt like I was meant to be there. If that makes any sense. Because I had gotten sick, because they they couldn't figure it out. Because, you know, to hear people, we don't know, you know, like if you don't, my doctor told me. The doctor that let me get the test Friday tells me the day after the surgery, if you don't call me, you don't make it through the weekend, right? And you think about praying the day before and knowing, like asking God, tell me when to say something. And so it was like, you have all these things happen that say you shouldn't be here, but you are. And it was because you were meant to be here. And so like when we won it, I was like, it was supposed to happen exactly, you know, like it did. And that was comforting to me, you know, that if if my career didn't go anywhere else after that, I lived that. I, I was able to accomplish that. I had people around me who supported me through that. And I think that's the 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 beauty of of life. That's the beauty of a of a team game. When you're lying in the confetti, what are you thinking about? What is like the raw first few thoughts when you're when we see those images of you in the confetti and I, I'm so damn tired. Huh. That was it. I was just like, this is over. I get a break. Hmm. You know, I never, 
I didn't touch the trophy until the next day on the plane. I didn't see it. I didn't see it at the game. Like, I'm, I wasn't one of those dudes around the stage. You know, I took pictures with my family and, you know, hugged guys on the outskirts. The celebration, celebration wasn't important to me. We had won it. I didn't need a trophy to, to tell me that we did. How, how would life be different today if, if you hadn't gotten that, that, that ring? I probably wouldn't be on TV. Or when they brought me on TV, they wouldn't call me uh, Super Bowl champion Ryan Clark. Does that matter to you? No, because I'm about to say, other than that, nothing else. Winning a Super Bowl forges a bond between you and the people you win it with, though. You know, so I think I think that part would be different. I think we would be looked at different in those things. But for me, like I said, man, every day, every play was the Super Bowl. So winning it only changed how people saw us and saw me. Winning it didn't change me. I make no secret of this. I love talking to Pittsburgh Steelers. That was Ryan Clark, former Steelers safety, also Super Bowl champion and part of one of the greatest defenses in NFL history. And you can hear more from Ryan if you listen to his podcast. It's called The Pivot. To find out about our upcoming interviews, follow Religion of Sports on Instagram and Twitter. And you can follow me. I'm at Fearless Green. That is Fearless underscore Green with me on the end. If you like the show, we'd love it if you would leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. And I want to tell you about the great team who put this together. In the Moment is produced by Sarah McCrory. Sound design and mixing by Michael Raphael and Jocelyn Gonzalez at PRX Productions. Britt Kahn is our talent booker. Our production manager is BJ Olin. Story research by Joe Levin. Kevin Sullivan edited this episode and is head of talk. Gotham Chopra, Amit Sankaran, and Adam Schlossman are our executive producers. Fearless Media is our consulting producer. And special thanks to Teresa Tran. In the Moment is a production of Religion of Sports and PRX. I'm David Green, and we will be back next week with another athlete and their moment. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Lisa. Good sleep should come naturally. And with the new Natural Hybrid mattress, it can. A collaboration between Lisa and West Elm, the Natural Hybrid is expertly crafted from natural latex, natural wool, and certified safe foams to elevate your sleep sanctuary and support a greener tomorrow. Plus, every purchase helps fuel Lisa's work with shelters and those in need. Visit lisa.com to learn more. That's l-e-e-s-a dot com. Support for NPR and the following message come from IXL Online. Is your child asking questions on their homework you don't feel equipped to answer? IXL Learning uses advanced algorithms to give the right help to each kid, no matter the age or personality. One subscription gets you everything. One site for all the kids in your home, pre-K to 12th grade. Make an impact on your child's learning. Get IXL now. And NPR listeners can get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when they sign up today at IXL.com NPR. This is my voice. It can tell you a lot about me, and I'm not changing it for anyone. In NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, you'll find a collection of NPR episodes centered on the Black experience. Search NPR Black Stories, Black Truths wherever you get podcasts.